freedom from sin's pollution. It's a freedom into the presence of God, into the presence of God. And it's a freedom for the service of God. So then first, Christ's freedom from, his freedom from the pollution of sin. I heard this, this quote this past week. Someone said this. He said, if I were to talk to someone exploring religion, I would tell them to consider Jesus because I think you find in him a great example. A great example. This person was asked about the relationship that one faith system can have to another. How do the religions of the world relate? And he said, well, essentially, all roads are are leading to the same basic place. But I have chosen Christianity because I think you find in, in Jesus a great example. And that's what many people, sadly, in, in the church and outside of the church think is what you get with Jesus. And they think that what you get with Jesus is the same, basically, as many other religions. You get a little bit of life coaching. You get a little bit of self-improvement. You get various ways that you can work on some of your problems, but the, the, the flaw in that type of thinking, of course, is that it, it's, a, it's an insufficient view of who we are as human beings. We are not basically good. We are not people who just have some rough edges and we will be able to improve with a little bit of life coaching and a little bit of self-improvement. And when we look at Jesus Christ, we don't find a life coach. We don't find someone who came to run self-help seminars. We find a savior A Savior who is prophet and priest and king. A Savior who sums up all of what God does in Scripture from beginning to end. This passage before us today focuses on the priesthood of Jesus. Jesus as our great high priest. And it wonderfully magnifies the the pillar of the Reformation. Salvation in Christ alone. The clarity of how man is made right with God. Perhaps when we were reading this passage, you felt a little bit disconnected from it. It's hard to relate to all of the talk of gold and curtains and tabernacles and cherubim. And perhaps you would say, what could all of that possibly have to do with me? And we who come to church week after week and try to study God's word, if if that's sort of our reaction to it, you can imagine how people might react to it who don't spend any time in Scripture. As 21st century people, it's hard to relate to this kind of thing, isn't it? We don't easily get this stuff anymore. We struggle to relate to people who would think about their relation to their God in terms of all of these continuing, ongoing sacrifices. It was not just the Israelites at that time, but but really most religions in some ways had this kind of a system set up. But in reality, we have much more overlap with these people than we realize. Because although we have all of the technology, all the scientific advancements, all of the development of our age, the way that we can deal with problems and the way that we can deal with sickness, the same chief problem still remains, which is highlighted in this passage, and it is this. How can people with corrupted natures and defiled consciences draw near to a living and a holy God? They had that problem then. We have that problem now. How can people with corrupted natures and defiled consciences draw near to a living and a holy God? The problem 
the insufficiency of the Old Covenant tabernacle worship was that the constant repetitions, the priestly watchings, the rituals, the sacrifices showed that drawing near to a living and holy God was not something that could be done in confidence. Your conscience was assaulted. Why? Because you knew intuitively there is a sense that the blood of lesser beings, goats and calves, beings over which human beings rule, that how can that cover you if you're trying to approach a being that is transcendent above you? The blood of lower beings cannot cover you to approach a higher being. This is the defiled conscience. This is the problem. To know that you are sinful and that what you have at your disposal is not sufficient to continuously and forever cleanse you to be able to approach and draw near to a holy God. This same problem would have been magnified the closer you came to God. Priests would have had this problem. We we sang Psalm 51 this morning, and isn't it interesting that in Psalm 51... To whom does David cry out, or in what is he trusting for forgiveness? He simply cries out to God. He wrote this after the episode with Bathsheba and Uriah. And as he cries out to God, why is it that he doesn't look to the temple, the tabernacle? Why does he not look to the old covenant regulations? Because there was no provision in the book of Leviticus that could have cleansed him from the sins that he had committed. And so David simply cries out to God as if to say, if there is forgiveness for me in this, if I am to be forgiven of what I have done, God must create it and God must grant it. This is the place where all of the Israelites would have ended up. For breaking any of the Ten Commandments, you could be put to death. There was not provisions in in the Old Testament law to cover every possible sin that you could have committed. A defiled conscience, and that is not only the problem of Israelites, it's the problem of ourselves as well. We realize, don't we, that we tend to make a mess of things, and more than that, we are ourselves a mess. And this is why Christ alone is such good news, why it's such a beautiful thing to trust And to proclaim Christ alone. It's true from beginning to end. We are saved in Christ alone and in Christ only. So often we think that, well, the the, the merit of Christ kind of exists out there. and, And it's sort of been made available. But it's really my faith. It's really my trust. It's really my repentance. That is what God is pleased with. That type of thinking is refuted in in a beautiful hymn that most of us know. It says, uh, though my zeal no respite know. In other words, if I were constantly zealous, if if I were the most zealous person that, that everyone would look at me and they would say, wow, there is a faithful Christian. Though my zeal no respite know, if my tears would forever flow, if my repentance was constant, and I was constantly filled with sorrow and seeking God's mercy and his forgiveness, what does the hymn say? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. It's not the level of our zeal. It's not the effectiveness or the constancy of our repentance. It is Christ alone. Through Christ, God alone saves. It's not a life coach that we need, self-improvement. It's a savior 
and a substitute. What we need is our great high priest, Jesus. This is what the beginning of our passage points us to. It is Christ, his name, Jesus Christ, who came as a high priest of the good things to come. Jesus, Jesus Christ, not, not anyone, not your pick of whoever you think is the best teacher who has ever walked the earth, not the one who told the best stories or had the most wisdom, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Claims of exclusivity are frowned upon in our world, aren't they? Why? We are told that one of the highest virtues of our age is tolerance. You cannot tell anyone else what they should think or do or be. A human being doesn't have the right to say that to someone else. And maybe there may be pockets of wisdom in that. But you know who can say what we can think or do or be? God. And you know who is not tolerant? God. God is not tolerant. Specifically, he is not tolerant of sin. Our catechism Uh, points us to the priesthood of Jesus, and it says that Jesus is continually pleading our cause with the Father as our great high priest. Why does Jesus need to continually plead our cause? Well, a couple of things. The first is that we continue to struggle with sin even after we believe in Jesus. And since we do that, and we know that God is intolerant of sin, we always need Jesus to intercede for us. We always need him to plead our cause because the strength of the lingering corruption, the vestiges of our corrupted and depraved nature, plague us. Thus, is God not nice? Why is he breaking this all-important commandment of our time? God is not tolerant of sin because sin is cancer. Sin is pollution. Sin kills and it ravages and it destroys and it maims. And if you do not deal with your sin, it will kill you. Your sin will kill you. God hates it for that reason. Everyone in this room has probably been affected directly, indirectly, but all in significant ways by cancer. And when you are affected by cancer, you hate it, don't you? And you are not tolerant of it, are you? And thankfully, there are doctors and teams of doctors and all kinds of treatments that are not tolerant of it either. And often when we are diagnosed with cancer, we become consumed with eradicating it from our bodies. Doctors scheduling scans and pictures and probing every corner of our body. Is there any place where it is? Are there any other places where we will find this pollution so that we can get rid of it? God is intolerant of sin because it is the ultimate cancer. It is the ultimate killer. But there is a cure. He is out there. Jesus Christ, our high priest. It says that our high priest, in verse 12, it says that he entered the most holy place. He entered the most holy place. What is that? Is there an account in the Gospels where Jesus snuck into the temple without our knowing it? And is Hebrews illuminating that for us now? No. The earthly temple in Jerusalem was a copy. It was a shadow of the real one. And the real one exists in heaven. 
We go on to read in Hebrews 9, verse 24. You can look down there if you want. Verse 24 of Hebrews 9, it says, For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Can we pay the debt of sin ourselves? No. Can another creature, any at all, pay the debt for sin? No. No mere creature can pay the debt for sin. Not a bull, not a goat. So what kind of mediator and deliverer and high priest should we look for then? One who is truly human and truly righteous. One who is more powerful than all of the creatures. One who is himself true God. You see, the catechism is bringing us to this realization that Christ cleanses our consciences. He addresses this problem that would have lingered, thinking, how can the blood of bulls and goats allow me to draw near to a living and a holy God? Christ took his work that was finished at the cross, and he ascended into this true heavenly tabernacle, the real temple, to present his work before the Father. And what does he achieve? Look at the end of verse 12. What does Jesus achieve? Eternal redemption. Eternal redemption. Not conditional redemption, not possible redemption, not possible or partial. Eternal redemption. He came to save sinners. This is the pollution at Christ, from which Christ frees us. And the call upon us is to always regard it as a very serious thing to be saved from our sins. The hymn, Stricken, Smitten, and Afflicted, has a whole verse that meditates on this a little bit. It says this, Ye who think of sin but lightly, nor suppose the evil great, here, that's at the cross, Here may view its nature rightly. Here its guilt may estimate. Mark the sacrifice appointed. See who bears the awful load. Tis the word, the Lord's anointed. Son of man and son of God. Part of growing in the Christian life is is realizing the enormity of the Savior. The word, the Lord, son of man, son of God, paying for our sin. He frees us. From that pollution. He also frees us to be at home in the presence of God. Christ frees us into to the presence of God. This is astounding, but it's also in many ways an enormous relief. We realize that as we think about the human condition, we were made to be in community. We are communal beings. We see this in the complementarity of male and female. Uh, we see this in the, the likeness that we see throughout societies of the family structure. We see it in the instinct that we have to create associations and groups with the people around us, the, the, the tendency of people to get together with others. We see it perhaps in one of the most cruel forms of punishment, solitary confinement. We were made to be in community, but specifically we were made to be with God. We were made For that purpose, we were made to be with God. Psalm 27 speaks of this. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Psalm 42. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. We are made for fellowship with God. We are made to to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. But there's tension in that, isn't there? We know of the the many places throughout Scripture, Isaiah 6, perhaps the chief example, where uh, someone is caught up into the presence of God and, and is floored by God, by the holiness and the majesty of God. And Isaiah, the prophet, who in many ways was probably a more righteous man than most who have walked this earth, cries out and says, I am undone. I I am unclean. I need to be cleansed. I I can't be in the presence of this God. But the theme of of our passage and 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 a constant theme in the book of Hebrews is that Christ has passed through something and he has entered somewhere. This is what the book of Hebrews is constantly pointing us towards. He entered the presence of God. To plead a case, not to plead his own case, but to plead a case for us. He carries with himself his own blood, doesn't he, in our passage? Carries his own blood, not his blood and our works, not his blood and all of the best prayers that we have ever prayed. It is only his blood that cleanses us and secures, love that word, secures an eternal Redemption. Christ sets us free to be at home in the presence of our Creator. So are you trusting? Are you trusting Him alone today? Is Christ alone your confidence? Is Christ alone the ground on which you stand before a living and holy God? He frees us to be at home in the presence of our Creator. But the beauty of that is that there is then an exhortation that is given to us because He frees us to be at home. In the presence of our creator. Hebrews chapter 4 says this. Since then we have a great high priest. Who has passed through the heavens. Jesus the son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. He goes on to say this. Let us then with confidence. Draw near to the throne of grace. That we may receive mercy. And find grace in, the to- in our time of need. Since Christ frees us to be at home in God's presence, let us draw near. For it is by God's grace that we continue to go on our pilgrim way. His freedom, the freedom that he gives us to be in the presence of our creator freely and at home is a freedom by which we draw near. We are to draw near. Let us not waste that privilege of drawing near. One of the things, the beautiful things about worshiping together as God's people is that this is a heavenly experience and this is one of the chief ways in which we draw near. We gather under the lordship of Jesus Christ, under his representation, so that we might draw near to the throne of grace, so that we might receive mercy and grace in the time of need. There is a special way in which God welcomes us into his presence as we do this this week after week on the Lord's Day in our private lives as well, in in the way that we focus our attention upon the Savior, the way in which we cry out to God in our prayers and as we read Scripture and think about it, that we are drawing near to the throne of grace. Christ has entered, and because he has entered, we are free to be at home in the presence of God. And then finally, Christ alone frees us for service to him. 
in good works. A freedom from, a freedom to, and finally a freedom for. The last phrase of our passage says that uh, we may serve the living God. Serve the living God. This word for serve is a word that would have evoked thoughts of, of priestly service in the temple. Like the, uh, the Old Testament priests, the Levitical priests. In other words, those who trust in Christ in, in some way become like these priests who were ministering and working near the presence of God. There, there was no higher or better privilege amongst the people of Israel than to have your vocation, your daily work, uh, be caught up in the service, in direct service to God. But why then are we able to view our lives in this way? Why is the spiritual life in Christ, why does the author of the Hebrews say that it becomes a service to the living God? Let us think back to this idea of a cleansed conscience. A cleansed conscience. Our, our catechism, of course, says that, that Jesus is always pleading our cause, and that is a reference to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, 25, which says this, that Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's beautiful, isn't it? Christ is able to save us to the uttermost. Wonderful word to describe how wonderful of a savior he is. He saves us to the uttermost. God is always pleased with the offering that Jesus gives for sin. And Jesus continually intercedes for us in our weakness. This is why we walk by faith. We walk by faith because at every step of life, every moment, whatever we do, we always need Christ in some way to intercede for us. Everything that we do We always need his intercession. But when we understand that he does, when we understand that he is interceding for us even now, that he is interceding for us with every insult that the enemy tries to hurl at us, with every time that we are weakened by our flesh, with every time that our sinfulness would rise up to accuse us, Jesus is interceding. Jesus and Jesus alone. Through Christ, we know that We are truly at home in the presence of God. The Spirit helps us in this way. It speaks there of the Spirit in verse 14 of our passage. And just as the Spirit acted hand in hand with Jesus, empowering him to offer himself as the sacrifice, being with him every step of the way of his earthly ministry, so the Spirit consoles us. And the Spirit assures us, what? Of the perfection of the work of Jesus. That's one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. It assures us, he assures us again and again that Christ's work is sufficient. Thus, we become priests able to serve God and to minister. The reformers spoke of a priesthood of all believers. This in many ways became a calling card of the Reformation. This idea of the priesthood of all believers. The, the gospel is not for a hierarchy of priests, but for all the church, gathered in his name and, and singing his praises. And, and the, the pastor is not a priest, he, he's a minister. He, he's one through whom the message of the good news is proclaimed. But he, he's not a priest, he is simply a messenger, a herald of 
the king. Through Christ, we all become priests. And service of God is then bound up in our vocations, the ability, the opportunity to serve God, perhaps not because our work day-to-day is like work in the Old Testament tabernacle or temple, but because the way in which you live and go about your calling is an opportunity to show forth the freedom that Christ gives you. This does not mean, of course, that we don't need the church. That's not what it means at all. It's quite the opposite, actually. For we know that God has made us for communion, and we know that it is communion with each other as we commune with God and with one another, that we are stirred up exactly for this service, this vocation of being a priest who who ministers service to God with our lives, with the way that we live our lives. Hebrews 10 reminds us of this. It says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful And here's the charge. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I began by saying that the gospel is not a sales pitch. It's a diagnosis and the announcement of a cure. But imagine being in a doctor's office and and hearing about a a fatal disease that you have, but then hearing that the doctor knows of a cure, but he is the only one who is able to heal you. In that moment, you need that doctor more than you need anyone else on the earth if you want to stay alive. But the unfathomable tragedy of it all is that we as human beings killed the one man who could heal us. But the good news is that while we killed him, He looked upon us in love. And even from the beginning, from the foundations of the world, and even before, he planned to sprinkle us with the very blood we were causing him to shed so that we might live forever in his freedom. The pre-reformed theologian Augustine summed it up this way, and we'll close with this. He says, So why are you astonished, sick man? Call on Jesus yourself as well. Don't regard yourself as being in good health. It's with hope that a person is sick who welcomes the doctor. But desperately sick indeed is the one who in a frenzy beats the doctor. So what sort of frenzy must possess the person who kills the doctor? And on the other hand, what must the goodness and power of the doctor be who from his own blood made a medicine for his crazy killer. And then he imagines the Savior saying this, they are in a frenzy. I'm the doctor. Let them rave and rage. I bear it patiently. It's when they've killed me that I will heal them. Christ alone saves. Christ alone frees. Let's pray. Father, we... Come before you today and this morning to gather in the name and by the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. We we thank you for him. And, And Father, we ask that you would 
hear our prayer in his name and that by your spirit you would assure us of the truth of your gospel and, and that you would send us back out into the world ready to live for you and to serve you. Father, we thank you for this good news, the best news, the best news, that Christ alone saves and, and he alone frees. So we look to him and, and we trust in him fully this morning. Forgive us of our many sins. Assure us of the truth of your word this morning. All these things in Jesus' name. Amen.